This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming today. Uh, welcome to the library. This is um, an event that's part of Women's History Month and part of our One Book, One College program. Uh, and this is actually our last e event for the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is our one book program. But we have many events left this semester. Starting next week, we have Buddhist monks coming to construct um, a mandala in the library, which is really cool. If you don't know what that is, come by. Uh, they'll be here like five days, four days, three days, whatever. Uh, so it's cool. But with that, I want to introduce um, Jane Ann Long. She's a new dean of the library. And uh, this is her first event where she is you know, in charge. So I said, you know, you need to come and introduce our speaker and uh, be formal about it. So we are very excited to have uh, Jane um, at the helm. So with that, I'll turn it over to her. Thank you. Nothing like a little pressure, right? <clears throat> Welcome, everybody, this afternoon. Um, I have the uh, pleasure of introducing our guest speaker today. Um, we have Ms. Tony Bond-Leonard who is the Executive Director of Black Women for Reproductive Justice. She's an activist for women's rights and reproductive health in Chicago and our region. And she's going to draw on her interview with Rebecca Sklute, who is the author of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is our one book, for a discussion of the Lacks case and reproductive justice. Um, and I, we want to share with you a couple of her uh, awards and recognitions that she's received. Um, she's the recipient of the Jane Bagley Lehman Fellowship from the Tides Foundation. She's the recipient of the Polly Murray Award from the Chicago Now Education Fund. She has received the Freedom of Choice Award from the Chicago Abortion Fund, as well as many other awards. So we are very pleased and privileged to have her here today to share with us some of her insights. So please join me in welcoming um, Tony. Okay. So good afternoon to everybody. And first I'd like to thank Tammy. Coleman Hill for inviting me um, to come to speak to you today and um, thanks to Moraine Valley College for having me. Such an honor. Uh, <laughs> um, how many people have read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? Let me see a show of hands. Okay. I first read this book um, probably at the beginning of last year. And it was a lot of stops and starts for me. I probably got halfway through it, and then I said, okay, I gotta put this book down. I just, I can't, I can't read it anymore. And so then I'd go back to it, and, and it was, it, it was a lot of starts and stops because it was a very painful book to get through. And I read this book in conjunction with another book um, by a woman named Kelly Brown Douglas. She's a black, she's a womanist theologian, and, and it's called Sexuality in the Black Church. And I read them both 
because, of course, I'm a black woman working on the issue of reproductive justice, and I wanted to get a deeper understanding of what was going on during that time and um, how something like this could happen to a woman like Henrietta Lacks. So for people who did not read the book, the crux of the book is that there was this woman named Henrietta Lacks, and she was an African-American woman. She worked in the tobacco field. Um, it was, of course, during the Jim Crow era and during segregation. And she had a number of reproductive health issues, um, aside from the fact that she, you know, worked on this, this tobacco farm, picking tobacco, and um, uh, did some work on the pig farm, and so she had some other connecting health issues, but the crux of her issues were around her reproductive health. And, and what happened is that she had cervical cancer, and before treating her, the doctors took, or scientists took, her cells, the tissue from her cells, without her knowledge, without her family's knowledge, and those cells went on to be called what we now know as the HeLa cells, um, H-E-L-A. And those cells are the standard that are used when doing research. And so they have been used to find cures for polio, for cervical cancer. They're used in uh, studies around HIV AIDS. They've been used to find cures for cancer, um, just a, a number of things. And what was so amazing about her cells is that scientists had been trying to figure out how to use cells in this way for research, but they could never get cells that would live for any length of time. And what was amazing about Henrietta Lacks cells, and, and, and I, I really don't like to call them the, the, uh, the uh, hella cells because it really doesn't give name to the fact that these cells belong to a person, belong to a woman, so I always refer to them as Henrietta Lacks cells. But um, what was so amazing about her cells is that they lived and they grew rapidly at an amazing rate. And they said that if you were to take her cells and just line them up, they would wrap the earth three times. Um, and, and, and if you were to stack them, they would, you know, just millions upon millions upon millions and tens of millions of times, her cells would multiply. And so her, her cells are still used as the standard for research. And the, the woman who wrote the book, she's a scientific and medical writer. Her name is Rebecca Sklut. And she uh, did, did a story first about it, and, and there was, a, I think, a PBS special about it. And, and so she kind of got on to doing this research and came to know the story behind um, the woman, if you will. She wanted to find out more about Henrietta Lacks, find out about her life, and, and really put a face to these sales. So that's kind of like the, 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 the just really kind of general backdrop to, to this book and, and to the sales. But I think it's important that we kind of start with a general understanding of what is reproductive justice and why we wanted to interview her for our radio show, Kitchen Table Top. 
So reproductive justice, just not getting too technical, is really about, is founded upon, the framework is founded upon um, a few principles. The framework was created by black women in 1994. But reproductive justice is about the right of a woman to have a child. It is about the right of a woman to not have a child and access to the family planning services and abortion services that she needs to be able to do that. And it's also about a woman having the social and economic supports that she needs to parent the children that she has or the children that she's going to have. And so very broadly, it's about creating, the, creating and supporting the social and economic conditions for women to be healthy, have healthy families, and live in healthy communities. So that being said, when you, when, when you look at the Henrietta Lacks story, there's, it really has to be unpacked. You can't just look at it from the standpoint that, oh, these horrible scientists took her tissues and, you know, developed these cells and did all of this research and did it without her knowledge and her family got no compensation. You, you have to look at it in a different kind of way. You have to consider the time, which was the Jim Crow era, era of segregation. You also have to look at it within the context of how black people's bodies were viewed during that time as well, and especially black women, which is why for me, I needed to read the book about Henrietta Lacks while I was also reading this book by Kelly Brown Douglas. Because Kelly Brown Douglas in her book, Sexuality in the Black Church, really gives, I think, uh, an in-depth um, uh, explanation of how black people's bodies were viewed since uh, pre-slavery and all the way up to today and how something like this could happen. And when you talk about during that time, historically, you know, pre-slavery, or even if we just started at slavery, black bodies were looked at as not having much value, as um, black people were looked at as not being able to have the mental capacity to understand um, how to um, care for their bodies, how to control their bodies, were looked at as um, merely for the economic um, value that their bodies had to provide to um, America's uh, economy through um, working the fields, through picking cotton, tobacco, sugar, all of those things. And and so that really set the context for me in terms of thinking about how this could happen and the lack of medical care that Henrietta Lacks, um, that she received. So, you know, kind of fast forwarding, when Henrietta Lacks' story is really interesting in that she had, like I said earlier, a number of reproductive health issues. She had, um, by the time she had her fifth child, she had already been having issues with abnormal vaginal bleeding. She'd already had several sexually transmitted infections, um, gonorrhea. She had asymptomatic neurosyphilis that had not been treated. She hadn't received treatment for gonorrhea. Her husband off and on would come um, 
would come home having been out with other women and had contracted sexually transmitted infections which were not treated. Um, and she even had, uh, I believe it said, a toothache for five years that hadn't been treated, but she eventually went back, I guess, because the toothache was so bad and had to get that tooth as well as several other teeth pulled. But what was fascinating to me um, as I read Rebecca Skloot's book in conjunction with Kelly Brown Douglas's book was the fact that even though she had all of these health issues and the doctors would, you know, for instance, when she was found to have, when she went to her local doctor and was found one time to have gonorrhea and the doctor said, well, you need to come back and get it treated, she never went back. Um, similarly, the same with, and, and what she did say in the book, what Rebecca School did say was that um, some of the times when she did get the sexually transmitted infection and from talking with Rebecca Skloot um, during our interview and just, you know, right before the interview, um, she said that Henrietta would go and get these shots for the bad blood issues that her husband would come back home with. And so we, you know, we know that that was the STIs that he was bringing home. And so it really speaks to you know, during that time, women struggles with trying to not have sexually transmitted infections, but also a lack of understanding about their bodies and a lack of understanding about various sexually transmitted infections. But what I kept getting stuck on was the fact that the medical um, personnel, the physicians and the nurses, really didn't take the time to help her understand why it was so important for her to come back for this treatment and, and understanding the reasons why she did not understand. She only had a sixth or seventh grade education. And so going to the, to the, to the hospital or to the doctor, like Rebecca Skloot said in her book, for Henrietta, that was like entering foreign territory because she couldn't really understand what the doctors were saying. And there was only one major medical hospital facility that she could go to near her home, which was 20 miles away, and that was John Hopkins Hospital. And it was considered to be one of the best medical institutions in the country, yet Again, we were during the Jim Crow era, during segregation, and so she had to go to the, the, the section of the hospital or the black ward, the colored ward as they called it. And so the treatment that she got was not the best treatment. So when she shows up at Johns Hopkins Hospital at, shortly after the birth of her fifth child with this abnormal bleeding, she had to wait for a long period of time before she could even get to see a doctor. She had went to her local physician because she felt this lump on her cervix and she felt it before she even knew that she was pregnant with her fifth child. And her family, her, her family members and, and, and friends were trying to encourage her to go to the doctor, but again, not only did she not understand, but there was this fear of going to the doctor within the black community, especially around female issues, because there was this fear on Henrietta Lack's part that if she went to the doctor, they might take her cervix and she may not be able to have any other children. And it was a valid concern because that was during the time of 
um, when, when doctors would take black women's uh, uteruses without their knowledge and, you know, tell them that they were giving them an, apodec an apodectomy or something like that. And, and that was during the period of what's known as the Mississippi appendectomies where black women would go to the doctor for various reproductive health concerns and then come back and, you know, discover shortly thereafter that they may not be able, that they won't, that they're not able to have children. But So that's why I said you can't just look at it as these scientists just took her tissues and, and that was it. There is some onus all the way around, if you will, because I don't know, for those of you all who read the book, did anybody pick up that she was, she was married to her cousin? How many, for those of you all who read the book, did you all pick that up, that she was married to her cousin? which was very interesting. I had to go back and I had to I said, okay, now wait a minute. Her grandfather was taking care of, you know, these grandchildren and he was taking care of other grandchildren from another door. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. She married her cousin. And that was also an issue that was not dealt with during, during that time. And the issue of incest, which is something that's not dealt with at this time as well. But... Um, I think it just kind of spoke to the conditions under which Henrietta Lacks and her family were living under. So, you know, as you go through the book, for me, and, and as we were talking to, as we were talking to Rebecca Skloot, uh, the other thing that came up was not just how, not just how Henrietta was viewed medically by the physicians and by the scientists, but even how black women were viewed during that time, even in their families, and the values that were placed on their bodies and the values that were placed on their lives. It wasn't a great amount of value placed on their lives. The thing about, I think, what happened with Henrietta Lacks that makes this so heinous if you, you know, as you start to unpack it, is not just the fact that they took her tissues, but even the treatment that she got while she was at the hospital. I mean, there was a, there was a, where she, there was a period where she was going back and forth. It seemed as if the doctors, she clearly felt the lump and she clearly could articulate that she was having a great amount of pain. But even when you think back then the way in which they treated um, the pain the fact that they didn't give her, you know, I was like, okay, give this woman some pain medicine so that she could deal with this excruciating pain that she had. And I think the part where it talked about, there was one place that the standard treatment for cervical cancer during that time was through radium. And they, which radium kills every cell that's around it, but this was the treatment that they used, and that they would take tubes, they took tubes of radium and sewed it into her cervix to try and kill the cancer cells, but they were killing all of the other cells inside of her as well. And, you know, it just, it just seemed to me, I just kept waiting for some doctor to say, well, wait a minute, we are not in fact, treating the cancer, but we're actually killing this woman by giving her radium. 
And at no point did they do that. And, 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 and instead, it, the pain got so excruciating that she finally had to come back to the hospital and say, I'm not leaving until you all do something. And even the way in which she was, she was, after she died, you know, she eventually did die from the cervical cancer and, and in my opinion, all of the other extenuating circumstances as well from the insertion of the radium into her body and the fact that it killed all of the other cells around it. But even the way that they treated her body, I mean, her, her body was put in the colored section of the 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 hospital where they keep the bodies but you know separate from the white section where they keep the bodies um and so you just see how deeply ingrained the 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 remnants of Jim Crow and segregation were but i think you know some people want to say that you know the doctor uh, Dr. Guy, who who did the research and who took the cells. I mean, the, the the fact of the matter is, we did need the advancement in science so that we could f so that so that we could figure out how to treat various diseases. And 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 there are good and bad sides to it. Yes, her cells were used to find cures for polio and cures for cervical cervical cancer, but what you get into, and this is something that came up during our during our interview with Rebecca Skloot, was the fact that it's still not illegal for doctors to um, use the tissue that they take from you for certain genetic testing. As long as they don't put your name on it, they can still use it, and there is no structured form of informed consent. And for me, that was very scary. Now, they can't, as they did with Rebecca Skloot's family, call, you know, they called her family back and took tissues from them and didn't tell them what it was for. So they can't do that now. But it made me think about, you know, when you go to the doctor and you have certain genetic testing done, what are they doing with that, with that tissue? When, they're, when they draw your blood for certain genetic testing, you know, there is no you have no guarantee that they are disposing of that tissue. And what is your right as a, as a patient, as a consumer, to have a say of what do they do with that tissue? Can they, you know, can they use it for research? And, and again, as Rebecca said, the truth is, yeah, they can. As long as they don't put your name on it, you know, your tissue could be used for research. And that's pretty scary. Um, because as what happened with, with Henrietta Lacks' family, you know, they used her tissue and the family got no compensation. The family had no health care. So, and, and even within the family, there were all of these health issues that, you know, though they were called back, <coughs> excuse me, to use their, for samples of their tissue and their tissue was used, they got no compensation at all and no health care and so you have this woman who has made this tremendous contribution to medical science and here is her family that has continued to live on with no health insurance and no form of compensation so you know that when I think about when I think about you know where we are today and even the struggle that we have with with health insurance 
reform today, whether or not you believe in the Affordable Care, whether or not you support the Affordable Care Act that was passed or not, you know, it does give some comfort in terms of more people have access to health insurance, but for Henrietta Lacks' family, it's too late. You know, for the ones who really, really needed it, it's too late. So, and Rebecca Skloot, the woman who wrote the book, started a foundation for just that purpose so that the family could start to get some sort of compensation and also to be able to get some medical and you know uh, medical care as well as I, I think some of the money is being used to send some of the offspring some of the the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren to um, to get a college education so how it ties though into the work that we do around reproductive justice certainly it is about the treatment of black women's bodies but it's also about informed consent and it's also about you know, what kind of power do you have when you go to the doctor? And that's something that I've been thinking about when I go see my physician. Now, should I, should I say, now, what are you going to do with that, with the blood from my blood work? I mean, are you, <laughs> are you all going to do some testing on it? Or what kind of say-so do I have? How are you all disposing of it? I actually really want to know that now. I want to know when I go and get my annual pap exam, what are you going to do with that tissue when you're done? Are you going to dispose of it? Or are you going to use it? What's going to happen to it? Are you going to take my name off of it? And is it going to go to medical research? And that's something, I, as we were talking to Rebecca, I said, well, do you think that that's something that happens more in teaching institutions? And so she said, well, yeah, it's a teaching institution. And so, you know. It, it does raise a, a question for thought, and she said that there is some advocacy work that is starting to happen now around the use of people's cells, but it's something I think that all of us should be thinking about. You know, when you go to the doctor, you might want to just ask. I haven't, I haven't asked yet. I think, I'm, I think I'm, I'm a little, I don't know that I'm afraid, but I'm just, I don't know what the reaction from the doctor is going to be when I say, so now when you get through with my blood, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to dispose of it? Are you going to keep it? When you get through with the tissue, when you, when you do my pap exam, are you going to dispose of it? What are you going to do with it? I don't want to be the next, you know, Henrietta <laughs> Henrietta Lacks. And if you do, I'd like some compensation. <laughs> it, you know, it, it reminds me too, as I, as I was reading the book, I also thought about another woman named Sarah Bartman, who, how many people are familiar with Sarah Bartman? Sarah Bartman was a woman, an African woman, and, um, it was in the early, was it the early 13, 1400, or no, maybe it was the 17 or 1800s. And she had what was thought then to be a very unusually shaped body. She had a very huge buttocks, she had large breasts, and her body was, she was told that she would be, she would be compensated for being a part of this circus where people, she would go around and people would just look at the, the unusualness of her body, if you will. And in fact, she wasn't compensated. And she ended up, um, they, 
the history is a little mixed in that some people say that she was a prostitute um, after she left the circus, that she had uh, some sub a substance abuse problem, I think a, a, a problem with drinking or, or using drugs or something like that. But, you know, part of that was because of the, the, the human degradation that she faced being um, taken around with this circus where people were gawking at her body simply because she had a huge buttocks and large breasts and because she had unusually shaped genitalia. And what they ended up doing is they actually cut off her genitalia and it spent a significant amount of time at the Museum of Paris on display for people to look at and just be amazed <laughs> at the unusualness of her genitalia. And of course her family got no compensation and neither did she. And in fact the, the African government um, got into a huge fight with the Museum of Paris about returning, um, or one, taking it off of display because I believe it stayed on display until like the 80s and I think it was finally returned back to Africa. I, I want to say in 2002 or 2004 or something like that where she could be properly buried and have a memorial service, a funeral service in her honor and also for the contribution that she gave um, for people to look at and gawk at her body and at her genitalia. So, you know, as I read about Henrietta Lacks, it just made me think about Sarah Bartman as well and even to think about the fact that though, um, though women of color's bodies have been studied there hasn't been a tremendous amount of research to help figure out how we can um, be cured from certain illnesses or a tremendous amount of research done to help figure out, you know, a better solution to help us address certain health disparities, but our bodies have been studied. So, you know, I would encourage those of you all who haven't read the book to read the book because you you know since it looks like only about four or five of you all have read the book I would encourage you all to read the book because it's one thing for me to tell you about it but you really have to sit with it and go through it it's definitely an experience to read the book and hear about the medical atrocities then and think about what's happening now not just to black women's bodies but also to women of color's bodies, Latina women's bodies, Asian and Pacific Islander women's bodies, Native and indigenous women's bodies. When you think about what, what folks are allowed to do without your informed consent, even in the area of new reproductive technologies, for instance, when they look at certain forms of, and what we know is that certain forms of contraceptives were not tested here in the U.S., but in fact tested on women in developing countries. So, for instance, the shot Depo-Provera um, was used off-label here in the U.S. by physicians. They can do that. Off-label means that it's been found that a certain drug or something or medical, um, medical device can be helpful in 
other, you know, dealing, treating other medical diagnosis or medical illnesses. It may be approved by the Food and Drug Administration for one thing, but if scientists and physicians discover that, oh, this helps with this particular illness as well, they can use it off-label. And that's what happened with Depo-Provera before it was approved by the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. It was used on women in developing countries like in India and Bangladesh and Chile as a form of a contraceptive. And it was given to them without their informed consent. Informed consent meaning they were not told all of the side effects. They were not told that you know, this is going to stop you from having children for this period of time. They may have just been told that this, is, this, this will help you not have children for right now, but they weren't told for how long. They weren't told that they might have hair loss and weight gain and severe migraines. They weren't told any of that. Um, the same thing happened with the birth control pill with, with Puerto Rican women. They were given it uh, uh, without their informed consent and in fact experimented with Puerto Rican women first to see how it was going to work and then figured out it was going to work and then it became um, one of the best methods of contraception that we know of here in the United States. So it has its pluses and minuses. The good part is that yes, is the birth control pill an effective, effective method of contraceptive? Uh, contraception? Absolutely. But was the way in which we discovered its effectiveness a good thing? Absolutely not. Because again, Puerto Rican women were given, were, it was, Puerto Rican women were used as, as the guinea pigs to figure out its effectiveness. Um, the same thing is happening still today. There's another method called quinacrine, um, which is a non-surgical form of sterilization that they um that uh has been used for used for something else i want to say depopravira was for malaria I, I can't quite remember what quinacrine was used for but quinacrine is a known carcinogen um and can cause cancer but some scientists here figured out that it, when it's inserted in pellet form into a woman's uterus it will burn the fallopian tubes and cause enough scarring that it, 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 can, it acts as a non-surgical a non form of sterilization. And so they have marketed it to, again, women of color in developing countries, and it has been used, they say now, with informed consent, but, you know, even with informed consent, there are many ways around informed consent but it's being used on women in developing countries um, to help reduce the rate of population growth. But because of the issues around the carcinogens in it, the Food and Drug Administration has not approved it here in the U.S. and as a matter of fact said it's not safe as a form of contraceptive. However, because it is used for something, it's, it, it can be, it's helpful in other medical conditions, there are some doctors using it here off-label. So those are the kind of things that you want to keep in mind, because when you start talking about new methods of contraception, or, you know, things like contraceptives and family planning, we always have to be thinking about what are, what's the rationale and who are the populations that are going to be targeted first 
to use. So when you start talking about methods of contraception, um, unfortunately, there are some, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. I will just say that there are some that believe that the rate of the world's population is growing exponentially and far too fast. And, and so when, you, when they start looking at, you know, new reproductive technologies, some of the agenda behind it is to figure out how can we reduce the world's population or the rate of the world's population growth. And unfortunately, the thinking is that people of color are the ones contributing to the exponential growth of the world population. And so when they start looking at new reproductive technologies, those are the groups that they are trying to target with the new methods of new contraceptives. And usually, as has historically um, been reflected, the new methods of contraceptives get tested on women in developing countries and then they make their way here for FDA approval, and then we see them on the market. So, you know, as I, again, was reading about Henrietta Lacks, I was thinking about all of those, all of those things that, you know, though we are not in the Jim Crow era and we are not in the era of segregation, in terms of medical science and in terms of whose bodies get used for research, and whose bodies are most, most at risk of being used for research without informed consent, usually they are people of color's bodies that are used um, without our conform, uh, informed consent. So I'd, I would like to open it up for questions. We've got about 15 minutes. Um, open it up for questions if anybody has some. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I forgot where I read it, but uh, you know, I read of you know, the, there there's a whole theory of uh, you know how AIDS was spread in Africa, you know, um, uh, you know, um, talking about a lot of things you talked about, like possibly through um, you know uh, vaccines or some type of drug. Uh, imported from the West and stuff like that. Do you want to elaborate on that, or do you have information on that? Now you want me to talk about conspiracy theories? <laughs> you know, it, it, in terms of with HIV and AIDS, we really try not to talk about conspiracy theories because, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that HIV is here and it is in epidemic proportions, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, also in South Africa, but, you know, the truth is it's at epidemic proportions here in the U.S. in certain populations, in the African-American population and in the Hispanic population when you look at the numbers um, in terms of the number of people of color versus, you know, what are the rates in, 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 in communities of color versus what are the rates in the white community. So, for instance, um, in the African-American community, we know that 
black men are 9.8 times more likely to die from AIDS than white men. We know that Hispanic men are the numbers fluctuate. They, it's somewhere, they, I've heard 2.5, but I was on a conference call yesterday, um, and um, this, this government official said it was actually three times more, uh, Hispanic men, men were three times more likely to die from AIDS. But we also know that black women represent 64% of the reported cases of HIV and living with, you know, trying to live with HIV. The reason we try to get, a, to, to get away from the conspiracy theory in terms of HIV and AIDS is because there's also the, you know, when you start talking about, oh, did it happen from a vaccine, then you get into conversations which, you know, believe it or not, people do have, well, you know, look at Magic Johnson. He's living fine. There's a cure for it, and it's not. There is no cure for HIV, and Magic Johnson is living fine from it, is living with it, because he has access to the kind of medical treatment that he needs. He has uh, probably a, a cook to cook his food so that he can have the kind, of, the, the kind of diet he needs to have. He has access to the exercise facility so he can get his exercise. But still, at the end of the day, he's got to take handfuls of pills every day just to live. And I heard, an heard about an interview that he did where he said, you know, even now, you know, even for him now, the disease is starting to take a toll on his body because after a while, the drug treatment therapy starts not to work. So I know of some people who are HIV positive and they take a break from the drug, from the drug treatment therapy. Now, I can't speak to whether or not that's good or not, but they take a break from it and then they go back on it. So, you know, we really try for, for that reason and, and, and a few more to not talk about HIV AIDS in terms of a conspiracy theory, but to talk more about how can we find more prevention methods. You know, it, did it start from a vaccine? Maybe. I, you know, I'd, Nobody can really speak to it. I've heard a number of, you know, theories about where it came from, the blue monkeys, the vaccine, or, you know, everybody's got their own theory. But at the end of the day, we have to figure out how do we, how do we stop the transmission, you know, the transmission of it, and how do we ensure that folks in sub-Saharan Africa and folks in, in South Africa and also now in, in, in Thailand, it's becoming an issue in Thailand, how do we ensure that they can get access to the kinds of drug treatment therapy that they need because they're not getting it. Um, did that, I hope I answered it to the best of my ability. Yeah, because you Um, you talked about the Rebecca, the Rebecca Seclude, uh, how she started a foundation. Would you just talk? Could you just talk about uh, about it a little bit more? Like, what is the foundation about, and what are they doing? Where is it at? I believe that the address to the foundation is in her book, but I can certainly get that information to to Tammy if you know folks want more information what she said about it what I know about it is that she's created this foundation to try and get some sort of compensation for the family um, and also to try and get some help the family get some health care 
And also I know that the foundation, money from the foundation, um, is being used to help support the education of some of the children from the Lacks family. But in terms of how it operates, I really don't don't really know all the details of it. I did go and visit her website, Rebecca Scoot's website, and I know you can link in to you can link in to the foundation from her website and I believe you can also give through her website. Any other questions? Um, you talked about the women that were given contraceptives in developing countries without informed consent. What were they exactly told when they were given the pills or whatever kind of medicine it was? Well, for instance, if we take, if we take, let's just take quinacrine, which is the most recent method of contraceptive that, that I know that, 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 they're, that they're working on. The interesting thing that's happening with quinacrine is that the way that a method of contraception gets on the market here is that it has to go through a certain number of, certain number of clinical trials. So there was, I want to say probably about seven years ago, a clinical trial, I think two clinical trials of quinacrine here in the U.S. One was at... Um, the uh, a hospital in New Buffalo, New York, and I can't remember where the other one was, but they did a clinical trial to, you know, that's where they take a certain number of women, they give them, you know, the uh, placenta or they give them the actual medicine um, to see how it's going to work. And I haven't heard any more about that particular clinical trial, one, because there was such huge outrage from the women's community about this particular method of contraceptive because of the side effects and because of the health risks and because of the fact that it was a known carcinogen or that it had, that, that quinacrine was a known carcinogen. But in terms of the consent process, that's where it gets tricky because what they use what they use in, and I'm thinking specifically about in Bangladesh, they used people from the community who were health workers to encourage women to, to go and get the quinacrine. And basically what they told them was that this would help them reduce the number of children that they were having. And so they tie that all into, you know, the, their economic ability to be able to care for their children and, and that this is going to be a healthy thing for them. And, but, but what they don't tell them is, but what are going to be the health risks associated with it? And they don't tell them that it's a known carcinogen. Um, the same thing happens, happened with Depo-Provera. When women were given Depo-Provera, that and, and even if we go to, I want to go back before Depo-Provera, there was another form of a contraceptive called Norplant. And Norplant was, came in the form of six matchstick tubes that were inserted underneath your skin. Um, and hormone, hormones were slowly released to prevent you from getting pregnant. Well, what they didn't tell people was that certain women of color were more at risk for keloid formation around the site of the of where the um, where the norplant was inserted, and 
then you had these women who were forming these huge keloids on their arms, not knowing why, and then, oh, now we find out it's because certain populations of women, African-American women, were more prone to keloid form, uh, for, uh, formation. And with Norplant, doctors knew how to insert them, but not all of them knew how to take them out. And so you had some women who were taking them out themselves. They were taking, you know, safety pins and just picking at their skin and taking the matchsticks out. But sometimes they wouldn't get all of them out. And so then they would, their bodies would go into a, pre a, pre a premature hormonal state or a menopause state. So, you know, that kind of informed consent. When you talk about informed consent, in order for me to have all the information that I need to be completely informed so that I can consent, I need to know all of the possible side effects. And I need to know in the instance of, in the case of something like, Depo uh, Norplant, I need to know, now if I start having serious issues, how am I going to get this out? In the case of Depo Provera, you know, women need to know, well, yeah, it's going to last, the shot is going to last for three months. There's pretty much nothing that you can do for, you know, nothing you can do about it until the hormone wears off. But in the meantime, how am I going to deal with the hair loss, the weight gain, the premature, you know, the, the, the breakthrough ble bleeding on occasion, that kind of informed consent. And that's what women aren't, a lot of women don't get told. And that's what a lot of the women were not told in developing countries. Uh, we've got about, mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm um, using this book in my COM 102 class. Um, I have two students from my last semester who we worked on the book together. And we've been dealing with issues from some of the stuff you're talking about in relation to women um, and informed consent, um, doctor-patient confidentiality, ethical medical research, racism, all of the issues that come up in the text. One of the things that I'm finding from a fairly significant number of students is the response of yes, these things are bad that they happen, but what does that mean to me? I'm not African-American, or I'm not a minority, or I'm not a woman. So, yes, it's a bad thing, but there is no impact. What do you see as the impact on all of us because of either the type of treatment um, that minority women, black women in particular, have received historically or um, unethical testing that has been done? What does that mean to someone who is non-minority, non-woman? Well, I think what it means is that, and, and certainly women, and com women of color face different kinds of barriers or different kind of health disparities or, you know, different kind of challenges when trying to interact with the medical institution. But I think, for instance, let's take the issue of, let's take the issue of, um, of the, the uh, cervical ring. In, and I can't recall which developing, which country it was, but there was an issue of how it was being disposed of. And the hormones being in the water from the ring. And so that certainly impacts everybody in that particular country. Um, 
similarly here when we start talking about um, issues around you know who has access to various new reproductive technologies no you may not be a woman of color but you might be a low-income white woman and the 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 health care treatment that low-income white women get um, is not that far above the treatment that women of color get and so you know it certainly is something to be thought about even if you're not a, wom a woman of color when you start talking about just everybody in general um, you know we talk about for instance um, at BWRJ we talk a lot about uh, beauty products and the connections between beauty products the deodorants that you use the perfume that you use the aftershave that you use what are the toxins and what are the chemicals that are in there and what kind of impact are they having on your reproductive health as a man? Some of them contribute to low sperm count and your ability to be able to have children in the future. Some of them contribute to women's reproductive health and the, reproduct and the, the, the uh, hormonal receptors, receptors in your body and, you know, even down to your nail polishes. And so, you know, it does have an impact on all of us and it's something that we all need to be thinking about. So it's not just about um, women of color, but it does challenge us to think much more broadly about how we're living in the world today and what we're using and how we dispose of certain things and what we're putting on our body. So, you know, for instance, if you just paint your nails, no, you're not at risk, but it's everything that you're using all together. It's the antiperspirant that you put on, it's the perfume that you put on, the nail polish you put on, the lipstick, the foundation, the blush, the mascara, the eyeliner, the aftershave, uh, Axel, if somebody, if any of you all use Axel aftershave or bath shower gel, that's found to have some of the highest numbers of toxins and chemicals in it. I mean, it's everything that you use all together on a day-to-day -day basis, even down to the toothpaste that you brush your, tooth, your teeth with. Do you really need to have fluoride in your toothpaste? So it's everything all together and it impacts us all. Um, in different ways, but we're all impacted, and it's and, and it's something for us all to think about. Um, that's up to the moderator. You had a question over here, but I know it's two o'clock, and 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 I see the facilitator making his way up. Hi. Thanks. Um, you mentioned compensation quite a bit. Henrietta Lacks and, uh, and others who uh, may have, um, you know, been subjected or were subjected. Um, so I know, and you even said, um, I don't want to be the next Henrietta Lacks unless I'm compensated and you made a joke about it. So, you know, there is an underlying theme. Um, would, would there be money? And then I think, like, what do you feel about reparations as an African-American black woman? Because um, I, I think there's a lot of talk about, um, and I'm, I might as well get to the root of it to see exactly what I'm hearing. Okay. So do you believe that descendants of slaves or any black Americans or African Americans deserve or are entitled to reparations? Ooh. Thank you. Okay. 
Okay, I'm going to try and give a short answer for because I'm look I'm conscious of the time. In terms of compensation, and yeah, I made a joke about you know if I'm if I'm going to be the next Henrietta Lacks, I want to be compensated. But I'm real clear that when you start talking about compensation, there is even coercion in paying people. Um, so you know, for instance, in, on the West Coast, there's a woman who has a group called uh, Children. Uh, for a caring community, which years ago used to be crack. But what she does is she pays women who are addicted to drugs money to be temporarily or permanently sterilized. So now you talk about compensation. She says she pays them $200 to get Depo-Provera or some, some sort of long-acting method of contraceptives. Is that informed consent? Probably not. Because if you're talking about somebody who has a substance abuse problem, the only thing they care about is getting the $200. So, okay, you're going to give $200. More than likely, they're going to go and get high with that $200, and you've gotten them to not get pregnant for maybe the next three months, or if you got them to get a hysterectomy, they're not going to get pregnant at all anymore. But that's not informed consent. That's actually taking advantage of somebody who does not have the emotional, mental, or physical capacity to really make that kind, of, that kind of decision. And you're not dealing with the bigger issue of substance abuse, which, in my opinion, is a public health issue, and we need to deal with it as a public health issue. And you're not dealing with, if she has other children, the fact that you need to help her figure out how to get and stay clean so that she can take care of the children that she already has and what kind of social and economic supports does she need. In terms of reparations, that's a much longer conversation, but um, do I, as a, as a black woman, believe that, that black people in this country deserve some sort of, of we'll use the word reparations for right now? I don't know about I, I don't see I don't know about monetary compensation right now, but what I will say is this. I will say that the impact of slavery and racism, which is a social construct, has been institutionalized in our country. And so it is something that has been very hard for people of African descent to get out from under. So even in terms of how black women's bodies are looked at today, we still feel the impact of the institution of slavery on black women's bodies and how we're viewed and the worth of our bodies. And so when I think about reparations, I'm thinking about what is needed for people of African descent in this country to be able to have a fair start. And so that, that to me means being able to be healthy, having access to health, adequate health insurance that's non-discriminatory, having access to education. And some may say, well, you got access to, you can go to college, you can go, but I'm talking about dealing with the state of our public educational educational institutions that don't quite understand how to educate children of color or how to educate, you know, black children um, because of our differing worldviews. I'm talking about, you know, the fact that many 
people of color who live in urban areas live in food deserts and so don't have access to healthy foods to be able to sustain themselves or you know to be able to feed their families and have to eat all of the bad food that contributes to diabetes, high blood pressure, all of the health disparities that are more common with African Americans. So it's, it's much more than monetary compensation, but it is, you know, compensating or fixing the structural um, inadequacies or making structural adjustments socially, economically, and politically so that people of the descendants of African Americans who were slaves can live better lives. So it's, it's, it's much more complicated than just cutting the check to everybody. All right, I think I have um, three points to close with today. Um, one, an invitation. We had a panel discussion in the fall all about um, responsibilities for the past. And I think the uh, reparation debate um, is, is part of this. So how much are we responsible for past injustices that we benefit from today? So I would invite you to go to our library website to our podcast page um, where you can listen to that. It's a good discussion. Number two, I think an important point with uh, the payment um, for the to not be the next Henrietta Lacks that I think we should, I don't know um, if it's clear for people who haven't read the book, people made millions and millions of dollars off of these cells. So it wasn't just that, that we cured some diseases, right? You can buy her cells now on the Internet, and people are still making money off of these cells. And I think that's why the, the fund, um, Rebecca Sklute set up the fund, because she was getting criticized that here's, another, um, here's a white woman benefiting again from Henrietta Lacks. So I think this is a very complex um, discussion. Number three, um, thank you all for coming, and uh, thank you, Tony, for your time. This will be available on the library website as a podcast, so you can listen again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.